0: Welcome to Essential Ethics, your gateway to discussion about the ethics of medical treatment for sick children. This podcast is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne. I am your host, John Massey, clinical lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This episode is part of our series called The Ethics Toolkit. When treating sick children and their families, clinicians are sometimes faced with challenging ethical situations. This series explores how bioethicists help clinicians address these challenges. I recorded this podcast about the harm principle at a recent visit to the Truman Katz Bioethics Centre in Seattle. I'm joined today by Professor Doug Diekemer who's a professor of bioethics at the Truman Katz Center of Bioethics, University of Washington, and the director of education at the Truman Katz Center. He's also an emergency physician at Seattle Children's Hospital. He's been involved with numerous position statements from the American Academy of Pediatrics on bioethics, and given this sort of decision-making for children and adolescents, considerable thought. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. Doug, we've jump straight in and assume some knowledge. Would you like to explain for a moment or two just about some of the principles of bioethics before we hone down?
1: Sure, if you if you think about principles of biomedical ethics, and, and I will say that, you know, that's only one way of approaching ethical issues. The way I like to frame it is tools in the toolbox. And, and there are certainly cases where I think a principles-based approach is perfect, and there are others where it just doesn't work. So with that as sort of a general overview, you know, most of us who think about principles that might apply in an ethics case, that they're the four that Beecham and Childress suggested, which include respect for persons or respect for autonomy, depending on your preferred frame. As a pediatrician, I prefer respect for persons because many children don't have a lot of autonomy, but you can still respect them as persons in important ways. Uh, And beneficence, which, uh, again, in the realm of children, I think is really perhaps the most important principle, uh, since children frequently do lack autonomy with, you know, as we'll discuss, the possible exception of some adolescents. Uh, And beneficence is the principle that more or less says you should be seeking the good of the other, in this case, the child or the patient. And then that third principle is non-maleficence, which is really the notion that uh, you shouldn't be harming others uh, without an awful good reason to do so. Again, to bring it to the medical context, we harm kids all the time. I mean, we put needles in them, and we cause pain, and so on, but we, we always have to justify that for some greater good to that particular child. And then finally, there's the principle of justice, which is about making sure things are fair, and it's about equality and equity and those sorts of issues. Doug,
0: uh, you've hinted there that you think beneficence, doing good, which might lead us towards best interest is the most important, but best interest doesn't always work. So can you let us know how you think that best interests or beneficence might fail when it comes to decision-making for children?
1: I don't know that it actually fails. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we always seek to optimize is the good of the child. But I think if there is a shortcoming of a best interest standard... It is that it first of all, and this is the focus on the term best in best interests it it doesn't always recognize that there may be competing interests that need to be weighed and and beneficence in isolation seeks the good of the individual, but we always need to recognize that in many situations in many of what we consider to be classic ethical dilemmas, there is a conflict uh, over how to distribute. <laughs> goods. And so justice may have something to say about the application of beneficence. So whereas we do seek the best interest of the child, and in, for example, a large family, you can't always do what's best for every child. Uh, Parents have to make hard decisions based on resources available, and um, that's not wrong. In my mind, it doesn't eliminate the importance of the best interest standard, but we have to think carefully about how it's applied. And then the other you know, shortcoming is, uh, is that anytime we talk about what's in somebody's best interests, particularly somebody who can't make that decision for themselves, which is where autonomy comes in, right? I mean, one of the reasons the principle of respect for autonomy is so important is it allows a competent individual to tell us what's in their best interests, whether we agree with that or not. Uh, you're in a better position than I am to know what's in your interest, the problem with children is other people are making that decision, and we will not always agree about what's in somebody's best interest. So the, the real conflicts in many of these cases are not about whether best interest is a good principle or not in terms of guiding us toward what we should do with a child, uh, but the real conflict is over, well, what is the best interest of that child? And a parent may disagree with a provider about that.
0: So then there's a subjective element to best interests,
1: Very much so. I mean, when you start talking about values, there's very little objectivity, right? I mean, it's values are sort of by definition to some degree subjective. Doug, I think
0: it's helpful sometimes also to think about kids away from medical decisions and what parents owe their kids within their circumstances that might limit the best for that individual kid in the family.
1: If you think about uh, where a family chooses to live, for example, I mean, we have abundant data that there are certain environments that are not good for the health of children. I mean, living near a polluted factory, living near a highway is not good for children. Living in a home that has lead-based paint or did at some point in time may not be good for children. And yet we don't tell parents they can't make those choices There are homes there, and they may be the ones and the only ones that a parent can afford. And so even though it may not be in a child's best interest to live there, we're going to let a parent make that choice because it it may actually be the only real choice they can make uh, based on the resources available to them. I sort of jokingly refer to the fact that when my kids were small, uh, I would not uncommonly strap them into their car seats in the car and drive over to get coffee at Starbucks. And it was hard for me to make an argument that that was somehow in my child's best interest, given the sort of roads I had to drive to get over there. I was putting them at risk every time I did that. And uh, they weren't getting Starbucks. It was dad that needed the drink. And um, you know, you could argue that that technically wasn't in their best interest and neither was plopping them in front of the TV, maybe when I needed a little downtime. Uh, the data would suggest that as well. That, But the reality is nobody's going to tell a parent that they can't do that. We may suggest that it may not be in their child's best interest to sit in front of the TV for an hour a day, uh, but we're not going to take kids out of a home because that's happening. Uh, we're going to let parents make that decision. And it may be that for the parent's mental health, um, that is the best for this particular child in that family.
0: So, Doug, you're making a couple of points in there. So parents don't always have to choose the best for their individual child across a range of things in medical decisions perhaps and, and outside, but also thinking of the net benefit of the, the child and in that, that family. But there's also something really important about family, isn't there, when we're considering these decisions that they're making for their
1: children We talk about, or people have talked about, the importance of the integrity of the family and that having a family structure that is as intact as possible is important to the welfare of children. And uh, you start to disrupt that when you second guess every decision a parent is making. And, And so many have argued correctly, I think, that there needs to be a fairly high standard before one interferes with a parental decision whether you think it's in the child's best interest or not when they make that decision. So
0: Doug, when we bring it back to medical decision making and we accept that there's a range of decisions that parents might want to make, it seems that if we don't agree with them because they're not choosing the best option, that's okay, they're allowed to and it's important for them to be the decision makers. But if best interests isn't where we work towards it's perhaps an aspirational goal for pediatricians. Practically, what are we working towards?
1: I think that's where the crux of the matter is. So if you go back over 30 years to when Buchanan and Brock wrote about surrogate decision-making, they, I think very importantly, wrote about the distinction between guidance principles and interference principles, a concept that seems to have been forgotten with time. And the point they were making was something like the best interest standard is the ideal guidance principle, but it doesn't necessarily answer the question about when it is appropriate for, for example, the state to interfere with a parent's decision. Uh, and, and part of the reason for that we've already talked about to some degree, it's almost never the case that a parent who's making a decision that I disagree with in the medical context, for example is doing it because they don't think it's in their child's best interest. We're having a disagreement about what we think is in the child's best interest. And so the guidance principle, I wouldn't say it's failed. The parents are interpreting it differently than I am. And it may be because they know their child better, they know their family better. We just simply disagree about the facts or how they line up in terms of the decision that ought to be made. I have families every day in my practice in the emergency department, for example, who may have a strong bias against using antibiotics and others who want antibiotics for everything. And sometimes I have a fairly objective reason for wanting antibiotics or not wanting it, but a lot of the time I'm dealing with percentages. And so this is where we'll do, you know, what's become known as shared decision-making. I'll feel pretty comfortable letting them make the final call after I present my reasoning to them and my recommendation. And my recommendation is based on what I think is best for the child and their decision is based on what's best for the child. So then the question becomes, at what point is it reasonable, ethically and legally, to interfere with their decision? It's, it's crossed a line that's different than the best interest standard. Um, it's crossed a line that we really can't answer with a best interest standard because we've already disagreed about what that standard means for a particular child. And that's what Buchanan and Brock were talking about when they talked about an interference principle that is different than a guidance principle. Now, one thing they didn't really do is establish what exactly an interference principle should be. They sort of outlined some sorts of situations in which they thought, at least there ought to be oversight of parental decisions. But they didn't really come up with a specific principle. What sort of things... Shouldn't you be allowed to do to your children? Well, most societies have already sort of decided there is a line, right? in in the United States, for example, we have child abuse laws. Every state has laws that say you cannot seriously neglect your child and you can't abuse your child. And there are agencies in place, and this is where state interference becomes, you know important, that are authorized to interfere when it looks like a parent has either neglected their child's basic interests or is abusing their child physically, psychologically, sexually, you know, some important way. Those laws do not say when a parent makes a decision that we think is not in their child's best interest, the state can intervene. What they say is you've got to cross a pretty serious line That's that many people have said is, is really the deprivation of basic needs. You're not feeding your child, you're not sheltering your child, you're not providing them with the kind of nurture they need uh, to, to thrive and grow uh, at least in an acceptable way.
0: So this really then is if we are not tossing out the best interest standard, if you like, but just disagreeing together about it.
1: Yes. When I make decisions as a clinician or when I make recommendations as a clinician, I'm doing, I'm making those recommendations based on what I I really think would be best for this child. And when a parent makes decisions about whether to accept those recommendations or not, they're also making a decision about what's best for their child. So I think it's, it is the right guidance principle, but we have to recognize we're going to disagree about where that principle takes us sometimes. And then you need some other principle to decide, okay, at what point can we no longer tolerate the decision the parent is making that that we may disagree with? And, and, and so, you know, Lynn Gillum has written about the zone of parental discretion, right? I mean, what she's really talking about is this space that exists between what I may think is in a child's best interest and on the other end, where I think the parents have gone past the point where I can tolerate
0: And that's what you've called the harm principle. Correct. But, Doug, you didn't really invent that. You might have been popularized with the name. So how did you come to synthesize that
1: principle? So you're absolutely right about that. The way this came about for me was really through my work doing ethics consultations in the clinical environment, it became very clear after several years that I was getting pushback from clinicians in cases where they disagreed with parents, and yet we clearly did not have grounds for interfering with that parental decision. So I'd get a call from an ICU physician, and they would say the parents are deciding not to, you know, continue this treatment or they're refusing our recommendations. Uh, we think we should get a court order. And I'd come in and it was very clear that, first of all, we would fail in getting a court order. And secondly, that it would just create chaos and anger and resentment on the part of the family. And and it wasn't justifiable. And so I, I started sort of thinking more seriously about this notion of an interference principle that Buchanan and Brock had talked about years before. And it became very clear to me that when we talk about an interference principle, we're really talking about exercising the power of the state, right? Because physicians aren't authorized, at least in the United States, they're not authorized to act without parental consent. I mean, to do so would be, you know, in legal parlance, considered a battery. Mm. So when I get asked that question as an ethics consultant, the question I'm really being asked is, is is it appropriate at this point in time to try to involve the state to interfere with this parent's decision to refuse what we're recommending. So we're really talking to some degree about a legal standard. Once I sort of that green light went on for me, I recognized that, you know, we needed, I needed to look for what what would be the ethical basis for that legal standard. And it became very clear that, you know, that's what John Stuart Mill's work in On Liberty was all about. He was trying to establish the ethical grounding for legal constraints in a liberal democracy. And he came up with the harm principle as that guideline. Basically, what Mill said was you, the state should not be interfering with individual freedom unless that individual freedom is being exercised in a way that places other people at significant risk of serious harm and then Joel Feinberg a more modern day philosopher has actually written four volumes in trying to extract how to apply mill's principle in the setting of american law and so you know using that work i the way i applied it was to say okay when parents are making decisions they're making decisions for a third party that has implications for that person's life so this principle should apply to them. in other words, if they place that other individual, in this case their child at significant risk of serious harm, the state has grounds for interfering and and that's really the genesis in my mind of 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 thinking about the harm principle is really the the correct place to make an interference principle uh, and as I sort of tried to lay out the conditions that the harm principle would sort of apply to clinical situations it it seemed to work and and in, in a in a very sort of real life practical way and and it also corresponds with the neglect laws we have because quite honestly if i as an ethics consultant am going to say to parents and the clinicians we are justified in seeking state intervention in this case we're really making a claim of medical neglect and it seems like the harm principle is the ethical basis for making that claim doug if
0: you have to call in social services state interference that brings itself harms Uh, i've often found when i've been thinking about it that the intervention that's going to be offered isn't going to work and therefore It just causes distress. Um, It may be sometimes used as a a threat, which is a terrible principle. Would you like to just outline what those conditions are that justify state involvement in a medical decision, to override a medical
1: decision of a parent? That was really the, the next step I needed to take, right? Because what Mill doesn't go much further than saying he never applied it to this context, so it was my application to this context. But, but Mill, you know, his work would go as far as really the first of what I thought were eight conditions that ought to be met, which is that the parent's decision, by refusing their consent, places a child at significant risk of serious harm. And, you know, there's two co- important components of that. The, the harm has to be significant, and it has to be serious. So we're not talking about trivial harms. We're talking about something that has some substance to it. But then precisely because I think what you raised is an important issue, that the minute we seek to involve state intervention, we have seriously disrupted the relationship with the family and created some turmoil. And that carries its own risk of harm. So in sort of thinking about what other conditions might apply, there were several others that became important, one of which in my mind, was the immediacy of taking action or the, the eminence. You know, is, is the harm that's likely to result from this decision something that will occur fairly soon? And I didn't define what eminent is. I, I, you know, I leave it to reasonable people to figure out in a given situation whether this harm in this situation is imminent enough to make a difference. But what I was trying to get at there was, look, if you got time to work with the family— and it's not gonna alter the welfare of the child in the interim, you should be trying to work with the family. And, and only when you get to that point where, okay, we're now at a point where this child is likely to suffer some degree of harm, uh, then it's time to step in with state intervention. And, and you know there are some clinical situations where you've got a year to work with the family. There are others where I gotta do it now. The interference has to happen now or this child's gonna suffer harm. So that was the point of that. But the intervention that you're proposing also has to have a likelihood of working, right? So I don't think experimental therapies justify going to the state. If you don't have data to support what you want to do, then that isn't justifiable. So it has to be likely to prevent the harm that the parents are proposing to the child. Um, It has to be necessary to prevent the harm. In other words, there can't be alternatives that might prevent that harm that are acceptable to the parents. And this gets to your point directly. And in my mind, you have to seriously weigh the harms of what you're proposing against the harms of what parents are placing their child at by refusing what you're proposing. And and that not only includes maybe the risks and the benefits of the therapy you'd want to offer, but also this interference with parental decision making. How seriously will that impact the child's future health care? And then, you know, I added two additional conditions, which were to some degree my invention. <laughs> um, these others were largely borrowed from others who, you know, were talking about similar situations. But the other two, the, the first was really designed to get the bias issue because one of the things we worry about is um, is applying the standard fairly. So are you making a case because this family is different than me? that I wouldn't make if they were like me in some way. And I call that the test of generalizability. And so the, the question I always wanna ask at the end is, would I make the same decision with any parent who let's say looks just like me, same educational level, they live in my neighborhood, they go to my church, their kids go to my school, would I still make this decision? And if the answer is no, then you have to ask, okay, what what's going on? Am I biased against this family for some reason? And then, you know, my eighth criterion is probably the one I consider to be the least important, but I, I sort of threw it in there because there there are always institutional issues, and so I call it the test of publicity because what I found with was with some of these really uh, difficult cases where we were talking about whether to get, get a court order or whether to involve CPS. There would often be a hospital lawyer or a risk management person or somebody from media relations who would say, well, what if this becomes public? Isn't it going to make us look bad? And my answer to them was usually, "Uh, look, if we're able to defend this, then we should be fine with it becoming public because we can defend this in the public forum. And if we can't defend it in the public forum, then we need to step back and ask what we did wrong.
0: Doug, that's fantastic to give us some tools to work with and tools that are relatively sharp. So if we come back to some of the clinical cases that we were thinking about, and I, on your website I saw that you would commented on Cassie C, who was 17, with a treatable Hodgkin's lymphoma, but she refused treatment. And then the discussion came up as to whether that was a viable decision for a 17-year-old to make what perhaps many other adults would think was a bad decision. So do you want to just tell us about the case and what your thoughts are about whether that's the sort of case where in state interference is justified?
1: You know, after I, I did some of my work on the harm principle, I started thinking about the adolescent cases. I, I had always found myself bothered by them even the older adolescents, the 17-year-olds. And I also found that there was kind of some disparity in the way people were thinking about it. So it became very clear to me, the dogma in pediatrics for years had been that by about the age of 14, adolescents are capable of making adult-like decisions and should maybe be allowed to do so. And these cases were all raising that issue. I mean, some of the adolescent cases involved 12 or 13-year-olds, but Cassie C. was 17. Um, There were a few other fairly well-popularized cases that involved older adolescents. There are a number of things that are worth pointing out. One is that in all of those cases, there was a parent supporting the adolescent's decision. So these were not situations where adolescents disagree with parents. As a matter of fact, it's extraordinarily difficult to find those cases. And so, you know, in the back of my mind... it's always been fascinating to me that in the media portrayal of these cases, it's always the kid standing up there defending their right to make this decision, and you're kind of wondering, you know, where's the parent? And it became pretty clear in a few of these cases that the parent was pulling the strings, or the guardian. And you know, the second comment I'll make about these media cases is I'm often reluctant to comment on them initially, because uh, the facts you have often do not align with what's really going on. And um, and so I'll often, if, if I'm commenting in the media, I'll, my comments will often be fairly generic until I have the facts. And what i found is that it's the court documents that provide you with the clearest picture of what's going on. And, and in Cassie's C case, the court documents were very enlightening uh, because it painted a very different picture than the impression the media had about the capacity of this young lady to make decisions and the role of her mother in those decisions and so on. Um, But to sort of go back to the adolescent issue, uh, in all of these cases, uh, the the sort of game I play is to ask myself, okay, if the kid were seven, not 17, would we allow the parent to make this decision? And in Cassie C's case, it's almost certainly no. She's got a good outcome with treatment. Uh, The vast majority of judges are gonna say, A parent can't make this decision. And the vast majority of good clinicians and institutions are going to challenge that decision if she's seven. So why is it different if she's 17? And and the only reason it could possibly be different is because she gets to make the decision and not her parent. Because we've already decided we wouldn't let her parent make that decision, right? So then the question is, does somebody under the age of 18... At least in most states in the United States, there are some places it's 21, and in some parts of the world it may be 16. Does somebody under that age really have the ability to make a life-ending decision or a life-altering decision that we should respect and permit? And I have to admit over time, because I've been bothered by these cases, the conclusion I've come to is no. So
0: it's a capacity issue that at 16, 17, you can make some decisions, but not a life-ending decision.
1: Yes, for the most part. So I mentioned the dogma. You know, the fourteen. We've picked fourteen as the age, and and so when I started finding myself disturbed by some of these cases, I I started looking at the basis for that, and and quite honestly, it's most of it goes back over thirty years to an, uh, a study done by Lois Wheathorn and her colleagues where. They did some sort of testing of adolescence and made the determination, and I will say that it was a very rigorously done study, there's nothing wrong with the study, made the determination that at the age of 14, it's really difficult to distinguish the decision making abilities from an adult. It's pretty easy at 12. And that's really where this all came from. Um, But here's the problem. Uh, The problem is that in the application of that to the clinical environment and to the real-world environment, what is often neglected about that study is that study was basically a classroom study. You take a group of 14-year-olds or 12-year-olds or adults and you put them in a sort of sterile classroom environment where there is no emotional investment and there is uh, nothing at stake and ask them theoretical questions. The answer that they came up with, I'm sure, is actually quite true, which is in that environment, a 14 year old can make very adult like decisions. But the question is can they when there's a lot at stake?
0: I think, Doug, one of the things that we probably notice, even in consent issues for adults, uh, if people are making a good decision for themselves, we tend not to question capacity and competence to make that decision as harshly as if they're making bad decisions. So I think that uh, that plays out, doesn't it, with the adolescents? We'll let them decide things that are good for them, contraceptive pills in a 15-year-old girl, um, but not life-ending decision uh, in a 17 and 364-day
1: person. Well, and I think that's right. I mean, you know, what's interesting about almost all of the sort of exceptions to the requirement for parental consent is their situations where a decision has been made to allow adolescents to consent to things like birth control, pregnancy-related care, psychiatric care, not because we think an adolescent is competent to make those decisions, but because it's in their interest to be able to make those decisions because involving a parent may keep them from doing something that's good for them. So the reasoning is not about capacity in that case, it's about, it's really a sort of a public health exception, trying to optimize the health of adolescents.
0: So Doug, what about the other case that might apparently be simpler? This is the parents of a young child, three or four come to your emergency room, febrile for a few days, little short of breath, moist sounding cough, little tachypneic on examination and good going crackles at the right base. And you think to yourself, I'm only an ED physician, but this is probably a pneumonia, it's probably bacterial. I don't need a highly qualified pediatric respiratory physician to make that diagnosis for me. And you want to prescribe some simple oral antibiotic for five days and the parents refuse. Are they making a bad decision for their kid?
1: Yes, I think so as a clinician. And so here's a great example of that best interest principle, right? In my mind, it's clearly in the best interest of this child to get antibiotics. The parents have made a different decision and it's not because they dislike their kid. It's not because they don't want to do what's best for their kid. It's because there is something about their understanding of this situation that has convinced them that antibiotics are worse for their child than no antibiotics. Uh, so recognizing that, I think, tells you what your first step is. You got to put some effort into trying to figure out what it is that this these folks are not seeing that you see and see if you can't make them see it. And You're not always gonna be successful with that, but taking the time, being respectful, exploring their reasoning behind this decision and seeing if there isn't some way you can work within their own belief system to get them to understand why you think antibiotics is important and maybe get them on board. So that's always gonna be your first step, right? But we're gonna assume that you can't do that. Then the question in my mind is does this violate the harm principle we just talked about—you know—does can you tick off those eight criterion? And a lot of that is going to depend on the facts of the case. So you painted a clinical picture that is pretty solidly consistent with something like a pneumococcal pneumonia, which untreated could result in some pretty dire circumstances, even death. So that's a situation where I am going to think pretty seriously about whether to involve social services. Now, part of that equation has to be, what harm am I doing to the family and the child in doing so and and making sure that that harm isn't exceed the harm I'm worried about by having this child not treated? Because almost certainly, you're not going to be able to send that child home on oral antibiotics if you involve CPS. I mean, unless there's a nurse who can watch them give the medication three times a day, because the parents have already told you they're not gonna give it. So what you're probably now talking about is actually hospitalizing a child and doing either oral antibiotics in the hospital or IV antibiotics, which ratchets up the risk to some degree.
0: If you go down that route, there's definite harm. I think we agree. There's uh, an intervention that's going to work oral in-hospital or intravenous antibiotics, in fact some IV antibiotics for a day or two might be enough, Yep. that it's uh, short-term, so this is not a family uh, where the child will be taken away, that you would do the same for a family of a colleague or from your church. Uh, And if the family got onto social media, you'd be comfortable that you've made the right choice. Correct. So I think that the harm principle and the conditions you've established uh, are helpful mm-hmm. and do stack up.
1: I would agree. And I think it, it's going to get trickier in the more typical case I see in my work setting of pneumonia, right? You painted a pretty solid picture. The kid's got a temperature of 1304. He's got a, an exam that crackles in one lobe, and you probably got an X-ray that shows a lobar pneumonia, and it all fits beautifully with pneumococcus. More typically, I'm dealing with a kid who's a little tachypneic, maybe has a runny nose. It's more of a diffuse picture on the X-ray. For whatever reason, I may have decided I want to do antibiotics. Um, But that's a situation where I might have a more difficult time making the case under the harm principle because my diagnosis is still much more likely to be viral than bacterial. And I may be uncomfortable with the uncertainty, you know, maybe I think it's a 10% chance of pneumococcus as opposed to the case you presented where I'm thinking more 80 or 90%. And so that, you know, if you change the facts a little bit, then I'm a little less inclined to invoke state action and maybe say, okay, you know, let's come up with a compromise here. Can I see you again tomorrow morning? And will you promise to come back if your child gets worse? Uh, And we'll see how things are tomorrow.
0: And that fits with the second criteria or second
1: condition, which
0: is time Mm -hmm. and uh, potential, well, another criteria, potential alternatives. So, Doug, one of the things before we wrap up that has impressed me is how respectful of child as a person, the adolescent as an emerging decision maker, and the family unit that the harm principle and the conditions that might justify intervention really are. So superficially the harm principle sounds really harsh, but in fact what you've mentioned and what you're doing is giving space to the family to make a range of decisions. And only when you're hard pressed will you interfere. And then there is a very clear and fair process by which you might do that, which will tick most of the boxes most of the time.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly
0: right. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. This podcast was recorded in the studios of the University of Washington, Seattle. It was produced by the Creative Studios at the Royal Children's Hospital and Wavelength Creative. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired.